0: Hello, and welcome to the Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I'll chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Zoe Weinberg, founder and managing partner of Xanti a venture firm investing in the next generation of privacy, security, and information tools. Prior to Exante, Zoe served on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and at Google AI. She has also had stints as an investor at the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank and at Goldman Sachs. Tune in for insights into ex of agentic tech and how blockchain represents a core component of the firm's investment strategy. Let's get into it.
1: Ben Jacobs is a partner at Seniors Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Seniors Capital Management. Guests and the
0: host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Senior Studio. I am your bull market, bear market host. Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. As you all know, with this podcast, we love to interview crypto's best and brightest, the GPs managing liquid token hedge funds or blockchain dedicated VC funds. Today's guest is on the fringes of who we would typically have as a guest, but her insights and and intellect and experiences I thought were so extraordinary that I was excited to, to bring her on the podcast as I think. Part of her thesis is crypto-related, but not all of it. And I think it'll be good for us as a senior studio audience to push outside of our typical boundaries. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce the audience to Zoe Weinberg of Annie. How's it going, Zoe?
1: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. Well, I would love to just kind of kick it off at the top. Would love if you could introduce yourself where... You grew up where you studied, and then ultimately, what led you to forming hey
1: Thanks, I appreciate it. I, you know, I had a very, I think, unconventional path to running a venture fund. I grew up mostly in New York, but to two parents who work in the arts, they're both in the art world, so they really have no idea what I what I do in finance and investing. But I became interested originally in investing really through an interest in emerging markets and and international development. When I was in undergrad, I spent a number of summers working at NGOs in places like, you know, India and Senegal and became really interested in how macro development, macroeconomic developments could really influence the trajectory of a country and as well as you know, sort of policy-oriented actions, either within a country or internationally. And that eventually led me to take a job at Goldman right after I graduated from undergrad. And from there, I, I moved to the World Bank, uh, where I was at the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector investment arm. Ended up doing a lot of deals and work in conflict zones, which sparked a lot of interest in national security and the intersection of investing and, and conflict.
0: Amazing. Well, you recently launched the firm Exante. There's a, a big release in Forbes. So would love if you could share with the audience first, what does Exante even mean? And what's the firm's thesis?
1: Yeah. So Exante is relatively new venture fund. The term Exante itself is Latin and it means before the event or sort of forward-looking. So, you know, we like to be ex-ante, not ex-post in how we, you know, approach the world. It's funny because it's, it's a name that typically resonates a lot with both economists and with lawyers because they tend to use that a lot, right? Economists use it in forecasting and lawyers, you know, use it in, in thinking about legal matters and, and, and making assessments of risk and things like that on a forward-looking basis. I am, in fact, a lawyer by training, and so perhaps that's why the name, you know, sort of stuck with me. But between us, well, and now your audience, I guess, it was originally a placeholder name. I thought it was, you know, sort of an interesting term that that captured something about looking out at the horizon, but I wasn't sure that that was the name we were going to stick with. And then at some point, we did, you know, a long branding exercise where we came up with probably a 100 names. And we're testing them among, you know, different people and doing sort of informal focus groups. And in the end, it turned out everybody really liked Exante. <laughs> so that's how we ended up keeping it. Um, and and occasionally I do get, you know, a former, you know, economist or lawyer often who who really, really liked it. But anyway, naming aside, the focus of Exante is an area of technology known as agentic tech which is technology, technology that helps to promote human agency and individual control over things like privacy, data, assets, the information you consume, et cetera. It's a term that's been bouncing around some privacy tech communities for a while, but you know, most people probably have not heard it before. It also you know, is quite academic in some ways. But we felt like that you know, really you know, sort of accurately and precisely captured what it was we were interested in, as, as a firm. And, you know, I, we're very much pursuing this strategy against the backdrop of rising digital authoritarianism worldwide, you know, things like censorship, surveillance, disinformation. And so I used to, used to call it anti-authoritarian tech. And one of the things that I found is that anti-authoritarian tech doesn't really roll off the tongue for a lot of people. A little hard to say. And if you've never heard of digital authoritarianism, which we can get into, you know, it can be a little hard to wrap your mind around, and so and so. Even though, in some ways, I, there's parts of that term I still like. You know, I knew that wasn't probably the right, the right way to talk about it, so that it was as accessible as we wanted it to be to 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 lots of people. So, you know, agentic tech is it's certainly a, a sort of nascent area or nascent field, but but there's been a ton of en- enthusiasm around it. And particularly, I would say, from founders, many of whom, you know, in privacy tech, but I would say specifically in the crypto and Web3 world, you know, are deeply ideologically oriented, care deeply about a decentralized future and care deeply about human agency. So I, you know, I have found that that's a domain that I think really captures a lot of the energy that's happening in in founder communities already. And, and we are happy to be able to help, you know, kind of shape it and give it some nomenclature. I'd love
0: to explore that a little bit further and what pushed you towards this thesis, because I know you've spent a lot of time in in the early part of your career working for government agencies, foreign relations. You spent a significant amount of time abroad in some uh, potentially unsafe areas. So what did you experience and see on the ground firsthand that made you think that this was not only important for there to be innovation in, but is it investable? Like is there enough high quality businesses that are gonna generate value that this was a category you wanted to dedicate the fund to?
1: Yeah. There's so a lot to unpack there. I'll 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 start with the first part and then we can we can move to the second. You know, in terms of like what led me to the this- thesis and why you know I thought it was I, w- I thought it was compelling. You know, as I mentioned before, I, I used to work at the World Bank and I did a lot of work in conflict zones and spent time in places like Somalia and Liberia, South Sudan, DRC, later not at the World Bank, but later I, I spent some time working in Iraq as, as effectively as an emergency aid worker. And I became really interested in all of the different ways that technology, was often being deployed in those environments to surveil and manipulate and control people, either by government actors or other types of actors. But I also, you know, saw all these bright spots too, these, you know, the ways in which people were leveraging technology to share information, you know, using things like Signal, or, you know, in the case of Iraq, one of the clearest ways of, of getting up-to-date information about the offensive in Mosul was a Twitter account called Mosul Eye, right? Like that was the way that people were able to communicate and share information. And as well as things like I talked about this before, but like mining Bitcoin. And you know, while I was living in Iraq, I had the good fortune of meeting some of the very first Bitcoin miners, if not the first potentially Bitcoin miners in the country who had set up a little mining operation in in a small village, you know, near kind of near the border with Iran. And you know, it's super resourceful and smart business, right? You know, like it's a oil rich government subsidized electricity, like you can make the math work. And also, you know, everybody who had been involved in that operation, you know, had been displaced, had, had, you know, sort of learned not to trust the Iraqi dinar. It's very hard to participate in the global banking system if your country is sanctioned in all these different ways, etc. And so it really was about attaining a level of financial freedom and security that just is it possible in every corner of the globe? So I found all of that to be deeply inspiring and, and you know, it sort of stayed in the back of my head. I, you know, I then, you know, if you fast forward a couple of years, I worked on something called the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which was an independent congressional commission. So I never formally worked for like, you know, a government agency, although I guess I did have a .gov email address. So it depends on how you think about it. But it was an independent commission and and the chair of the commission was Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and I, you know, got to know him, and you know, one thing sort of led to another, and and that eventually led to me, you know, founding Xante But really, because I was interested in how we might accelerate the development of technology that ultimately makes democracies more robust and resilient, and is a real counterweight to the Chinese surveillance state model of the world. And one of the things I had observed over the last couple of years. Is that there? You know, there's been a huge, you know, uptick in interest in defense tech and dual-use tech, which, by the way, is great because for so long, I think there really wasn't a whole lot of private capital that that was going into that domain. But I've also found that you know a lot of the focus of the defense tech world has been on hardware, advanced robotics, drones, etc. Again, that's great. The DoD, I'm sure, is going to continue purchasing that type of equipment. But you know, conflict is also evolving in lots of different ways. And and especially as the US, you know, turns toward great power competition with with players like China and Russia, issues like surveillance, hacking, you know, stolen IP, TikTok, et cetera, are gonna become, you know, greater and greater threats and and you need a whole lot more than, you know, kind of military equipment and hardware to, to solve a lot of those problems. And you don't necessarily need, you know, the 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 surface area to be government to to sort of effectively you know kind of challenge those forces right like both consumer and enterprise data is is oftentimes you know just as just as valuable right so i was thinking a lot about you know what does it mean to really invest in national security what does it mean to defend democracy and i think there's a lot of different angles to that to answer your second question about you know how do you know whether or not this is you know, a domain that's worth investing in from a returns perspective, I think what's really interesting is that, and, and this is part of what, you know, gave me the conviction that this really was a, an interesting market opportunity, is that we're, ha- we're witnessing the confluence of a bunch of different drivers. One is like meaningful technological developments, in, including, you know, in advanced cryptography and blockchain that are creating meaningful, you know, alternatives to, to sort of big tech and the models we've seen in the past. You know, there's also a rapidly evolving regulatory environment that's creating some really interesting opportunities. There's growing consumer awareness and demand for enhanced privacy and self-custody that I think makes this a little bit different in the past. And then in the backdrop, as I alluded to before, all of these geopolitical dynamics between the U.S. and China that that make this a really critical domain to, to invest in.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that overview. It was helpful. I wanted to double click into your AI experience and thinking about AI safety. And obviously it's become top of mind with OpenAI releasing ChatGPT, the speed of these new LLMs coming to market and evolving. And just, I don't know if it's fear mongering when people saying like all these white collar jobs will be eradicated due to AI and not so distant future that has people pounding the table on slowing this tech. Etc. I specifically am thinking about AI in terms of authenticity of content and the easy replication of content, specifically with the, the election year coming to bear in just a you know few days. Here we'll be in 2024. So, how do you think about you know AI? Your specific angle on AI as it pertains to agentic tech and and maybe any deals you've done thus far that express that that perspective
1: yeah i think there's both when i think about and generally and then specifically around generative ai and you know i think you're alluding to things like deep fakes etc that that potentially could really you know disrupt our information ecosystem i think for me there's both technologies that are ultimately sort of like reactive and, and and defensive right like something like deep fake detection and we have invested in that space before as well as things that to me are representative of agentic tech, but are more about, you know, giving users more autonomy and agency. And I think there's this kind of like larger question that hasn't, you know, totally been resolved yet, which is like, is there a world in which individual users and organizations, but let's say specifically end users, can effectively own their own training data, right? And I think some people would say, the train has left the station, too late to do that. But I think we're still in the early innings here. And, you know, it's it's not clear to me that that is a foregone conclusion. And so I'm quite interested in the the, the people who are building, you know, the data infrastructure that will actually allow end users to have more control over first party data and be able to interact with AI agents and AI co-pilots and assistants and things like that, but in a way that is highly dependent on on their control, their consent, their autonomy, their ability to port that from one platform to another, et cetera. So actually, I would say often in, in many ways, like in the spirit of of a, of a system that is ideally more decentralized. But so that's kind of like broadly, you know, I think there's like these two kind of like ways to think about it. In terms of thinking about the impact of AI on, on content and elections and disinformation and so forth, you know, I... First of all, I think it's easy, you know, to to like it's easy to catastrophize in this space. I'll say that like there, you know, disinformation has certainly always been around, right? Like propaganda has existed for generations, you know, different types of both Photoshop and even earlier versions of that have also existed for a long time. So, you know, in some ways it's like the phenomenon itself isn't new. So the question is just like. What makes this different, and and I think you know there there are some factors there, right? Like the the photorealistic qualities of some of the fake content is maybe better than it's ever been, right? It's also potentially like more viral. It's also more fragmented. It's easy for like you or I to just create some of this content ourselves, you know, using Midjourney or Dali or or whatever. So it's much more diffuse. So so there are things that make it in some ways scarier, but I think it also is important to remember, like society has dealt with some of these problems for a long time. And so there is, you know, there is historical wisdom and, you know, institutional knowledge that we can leverage, I think, to meet this moment. So, and and I think we should feel good about that, right? Like, thing, you know, it's not, it's it's, it's not like it's like a game over situation. But, you know, I think, you know, we still have yet to see probably some of the worst examples of, of the ways in which individuals can be, you know, potentially really duped by, by Gen AI. And I think one of the challenges is that it's not just a technological problem, it's also a like, psychological one. You know, even when you, there, there's some like studies out there that show that like even when you show people an image or a video and you tell them like, this is synthetic, this is fake, a crazy number of people still kind of think maybe it's true after watching it. And that's that's not a technological issue. That's an issue of humans being told their whole lives to generally trust their eyes, right, and to to seeing and believing, etc. And and so that requires media literacy. That requires a user base that is just more informed, more skeptical, all of those things. And perhaps Gen Z has that already because they are you know digital natives in the truest sense. But but you know that that's a huge component of trying to solve these problems and one that we haven't that we haven't nailed yet
0: amazing let's talk about blockchain and crypto as i know it's a component part of the thesis there's been a rise of zk technology fully homomorphic encryption obviously crypto promotes open self-sovereignty public goods how does blockchain and, and crypto and and digital assets play into your thesis and maybe what are elements of crypto that you avoid that you don't think are relevant to what you're investing in.
1: It's it's deeply, deeply connected to our thesis. And and in and in some ways I almost know that, you know, I, I'm reminded of that every day because whenever I explain our thesis to somebody who is, you know, in in the crypto or web three world, they immediately get it. Like they immediately understand what we're doing. They understand the ethos. They understand authoritarianism. They, you know, they totally get it it's usually people outside of that world that it requires like more conversation more education and so forth. You know, my general rule of thumb as we look for investments for the for the for the fund is, you know, if it's a product or tool that ultimately gives users more control over their privacy, data, assets, the information they consume, etc., it's probably headed in the right direction, right? So that actually means that we can cast a relatively broad net. We look at Cybersecurity. We look at crypto and Web three. We look at digital identity. You know, data infrastructure, deep fake detection. Right. Like it actually, we're, we're we're very thematically focused, but it's actually quite broad when you when when it's applied. You know, in all these different ways that that ultimately cut across sectors. You know, within crypto and Web three. You know, I think the types of things we're interested in are things like you know, privacy first computational platforms or. Digital identity and verifiable credentials, zero knowledge, as you mentioned, things like decentralized storage. And, and I'll give an example of like, you know, aside from it being these things being kind of just decentralized and therefore aligned from a kind of abstract values perspective, I think there are also very tangible ways that that it relates deeply to countering digital authoritarianism. And, and decentralized storage is a good example of that, right? Like an weave or an IPFS, you know, can be used for lots of different enterprise and consumer use cases but has also been used by, you know, protesters in Hong Kong to upload copies of their publications and media before it can be cens- censored by Beijing. And so having tools that are very censorship resistant, even they, even if they are not being built specifically for the use by political activists or political dissidents, you know, is the type of thing we're interested in, something that at its core is built in a way that is resistant to, to interference or to, or to centralized control, etc., and so so in that sense, you know, I think, you know, we feel we feel deeply aligned with the crypto ecosystem and and anything that's a privacy enhancing technology, often that's built on advanced cryptography, is usually within is within our remit. The types of things that, you know, probably are are, you know, harder to make the case for would be the you know, things like NFT marketplaces or or play to earn gaming, sometimes some of the like very kind of web free consumer. Plays, you know, it's just it's simply a little bit. Hard. It's a little harder to draw the draw the nexus with our with our thesis. But I would say on on the whole, like we, we spend a lot of time looking at the crypto space. My partner at X-Anti, I think mean Michael Mosier, and and he has spent a lot of time in that world, and and it's a huge area of focus for us.
0: Are there times where there's a conflict between? What you think could make for a good investment return versus what you think is a good public good for the world. And, and the reason I ask is in crypto, I find sometimes people are willing to invest into, you know, the next L1 or L2 or whatever the random pumpable token project is, but it doesn't really advance the industry. So I'm curious if there are similar instances in your work where you're like, okay, this might, you know, do well from an investment return standpoint, but it's at conflict with what I think the world should be moving towards to prevent digital authoritarianism and then also give, you know, individuals more sovereignty over their own information, et cetera.
1: We have that challenge on both sides. Sometimes I see projects that are deeply values aligned, hugely mission oriented, you know, they're changing the world, they're building tools, specifically for, you know, political, you know, political activists, dissidents, human rights defenders, journalists, etc. And I love what they're building. But I are, but I know that it's not, you know, it's not a company that's going to make venture like returns. And also, in in many of those cases, I actually don't even think they should take venture capital funding, because venture capital is, is suited for a very specific you know type of company that has a, you know a certain type of scale that it can reach and so forth and, and can and it can also, you know change the incentives for a company when it comes to how they serve their various stakeholders, as we all know well. And so yes, all the time I see companies that are that are very value aligned but but probably not suitable for for venture dollars. And one of my great frustrations actually, in this whole domain, is that as of now there is not a lot of capital available for those types of projects and endeavors, either on the grant making side or potentially investment capital, but just investment capital that's not, you know, not not necessarily with venture expectations. You know, wh- one of the things I would love to see happen in the space as time goes on is more capital that's available for those types of public goods projects, or I would just say you know, sort of mission-oriented projects that may not be trying to, you know, sort of monetize. And by the way, there are lots of good examples of of very successful organizations that have done that, including, you know, Signal, which is, which is owned by the Signal Foundation and is a nonprofit. You know, I think the fact that it's a nonprofit is part of what gives a lot of users the confidence that, you know, they have no incentive to collect and sell your data because, you know, they're not trying to return, you know, generate returns for shareholders. They're not trying to maximize the, you know, revenue and things like that or for example something like tor right the the kind of circumvention tools vpn etc both of which by the way were originally one of their original funders was the open tech fund which is a congressionally oriented congressionally funded vehicle that that funds a lot of projects that that help to advance you know the open internet and and freedom of information and things like that so i'm very supportive of that sort of thing i wish there was more capital out there to do that and yeah at the now like some of those projects, like we, you know, I can't, I can't justify it. On the other side, for sure, I see things all the time that, you know, I'm like, hmm, maybe, you know, maybe that's a great business, but like, not related to our thesis, right? Or in fact, could be directly counter to our thesis, right? You know, I am very interested in tools that the counter surveillance, and yet I actually end up getting sent often a lot of surveillance tech deals, maybe because people are confused or whatever. I don't know. And I always want to take those meanings because I really do want to understand what people are building and what the cutting edge is and all of that stuff. And and yet, you know, like often it's tools that are leveraging things like facial recognition that have like a high probability of like being misused or or, you know, or yeah, or or being it could be used, you know, by law enforcement, for example, in a way that I think violates civil liberties, et cetera. And so those are the sort of things we also would definitely not invest in, even if like yeah, you could maybe make a good case that it's it's gonna be, you know, a good a good business. So yeah, we see that on both sides. I think, you know, maybe unless you're just a true generalist, that you know, if you're a true generalist, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I would say anybody who's in an a thesis-driven fund, I I think deals with this dynamic for sure.
0: I would love your perspective on WorldCoin and biometric solutions and what the next phase of identity looks like like are you willing to get your eyeballs scanned if it you know makes your your life more efficient or you know you have better ownership over your information
1: you know this is a perennial question around privacy is about the user's willingness to trade off privacy for convenience right and we make those types of decisions and bargains with ourselves with the world every single day some of us are much more vigilant about it than others, but but that is always a trade-off. It doesn't, I actually don't think that it needs to be a trade-off. Like I don't think that, that you know, it is preordained that more private solutions also have to be inconvenient, right? But like historically that has often been the case. I, I do think, for well, a few things. One, I think that it's very easy to be lax about one's privacy when you live in a relatively mature, stable democracy where like, on a day-to-day basis maybe you're not that worried that the government is spying on you right we have to remember that that is not the case for many many people around the world right for many people around the world it is truly you know if not a life or death decision or issue it is it's it's a one it's one of you know great you know sort of critical importance to 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 folks lives and livelihoods and personhood and all of those things so that's one thing i'll say but the other is that you know i i think in general solutions that that use biometrics tend to make me nervous, you know? Like, and and not because the companies are not are ill intentioned or and not because folks don't try to, you know, introduce the right security measures in order to protect those biometrics, but there just is a higher degree of risk when it when you are collecting anything that is truly like an irrevocable form of identity and credential. Right. Like if my, you know, I lost my wallet a little while ago, like had to cancel my credit cards. They changed passwords, et cetera. At least I can change a password. I can't easily change my fingerprint, right? And so I think, you know, the the possibilities of compromise are high. And if you're living in, if, if you're trying to pursue ends that are about giving individuals more control and and countering surveillance, I think it can often be very hard to get on board with biometrics. That being said, I think there are some very interesting developments that are happening out there, which maybe we can talk more about in a future podcast, that would help to thread the needle between things like passwordless authentication and and using biometrics, but doing it in a way that really is safe and secure. So I'm, you know, excited for those possibilities. But, you know, to answer your question in a different way, like, yeah, I I don't use clear in the airport, even though probably would make it easier and faster for me to go through security, right? And, you know, that is a choice that I make for myself, but, but other people make a different bargain. And I, you know, I, I, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, I think for, for any individual. And ideally you live in a society where you generally feel pretty safe, but if you don't, then it becomes much more serious.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, I think most people are making those decisions in their lives without even really realizing it for example using your apple face id it makes it much easier but now your facial structure is within some database within apple well at least that's stored
1: on device right <laughs> but oh, okay. i hear you yeah. right like but i think but i think this is the challenge it's like first of all i don't think most users know how to distinguish between what's on device and what's in the cloud right so actually this i mean i remember recently i was like waiting in line at tsa and some clear person came up and was like you know like telling me i should do clear and I, and and they asked me why i didn't want to and so i actually like ended up in a conversation with this guy about biometrics and he's like well but you do it all the time on your phone and i was like yes but that's stored locally and if i lose my device and i get a new one i have to like actually you know you used to do face id again right like you have to do it all over again because it's stored on device and and i don't think I don't know that registered, right? Or I don't think most people think about that. And why would they? Like you don't get you don't learn about this stuff in school. You don't you know, like personal privacy, digital privacy is not like, you know, maybe that should be the equivalent of like, you know, a a a life skills class that you take in high school or college. But like as of today, I don't you know, I don't I don't know where people go for this information.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I personally didn't even know that they said he was saved locally. So thank you for Telling me that that you know smooths out that fear, but
1: <laughs> things
0: like things like where to even save passwords, right? Totally. It's like how many how many people use LastPass only to have LastPass exposed, you know, a year yeah. ago and frantically have to change, and then you've got a one password or where, what do you do? So it's a it's a never ending rabbit hole. I know we're limited on time, so I had one more question before we get into some spicy takes. And it's based on a piece you had written that I read uh, a while ago regarding foreign policy in the metaverse. Uh, And just like how, as we move to more digital first world, how governments should play within these new digital, non-physically constrained landscapes. So I would love your thoughts there.
1: When I write that piece, it was, you know, my, my intent in writing it was really to be able to engage in some magical thinking, right? Like if we really do migrate our lives and more of what we do and how we work and how we play and how we meet people and how we get services, et cetera, to the metaverse or to any digital environment, what is the knock-on effect for, for geopolitics or how are international relations going to be connected in the metaverse? And it's, and you know, it's a super fun intellectual exercise it really i mean it's just for i I felt like it was a form of almost like thinking thinking in like a science fictiony type of way right about like could you have embassies in the metaverse and when you need to visit the embassy you just do that in a digital way or you know do you have you know uh both like espionage and things like that that occur in the metaverse like what are all the different ways um in which uh you could essentially have the types of global affairs that occur, you know, in the analog world, but but in a digital one, and not just the sort of like prosaic, like, yes, the cybersecurity, which we've been talking about for a long time, but actually in these kind of like new, quite different ways. You know, one, at the time, you know, I think there was also a lot of interest and discussion around what it might look like to have nation states that were either defined by the metaverse or might, or maybe a nation state that is sort of outside the bounds of like the geographic nation state that we think about today, but that occupies a real place within a metaversal environment. Obviously like, you know, the network state is like one type of, of version of that, but, you know, I think there are others and, and yeah, I, I continue to think it's a really like interesting area to, to explore I, you know, I think all of us sort of feel like the metaverse is is coming and not coming and fits and starts. And there are ways in which I think we're all very eager to export our whole lives to digital environment. And then many ways in which like, we're all seeking in person IRL interaction. I think the obviously the pandemic taught us a lot about that. So you know, I have zero predictions about like, when we're going to see, you know, a US embassy in the metaverse. But I think it's worth considering. And I also think, um, that 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 type of you know creative imagination is like part of what fuels a lot of innovation, and so I'm a huge fan of of any effort to kind of like you know do that type of magical thinking.
0: Yeah, it's a fun thought experiment. I don't know. What do you think? What
1: like do? Yeah, I want to know what your thoughts are.
0: Yeah, I mean i I've been participatory in some decentralized internet native organizations and it's extremely challenging to coordinate and to have uh, a line thinking across a number of different constituents, geographically diverse, but, you know, focus on one area online. It'll be fascinating to me to watch how nation states try to govern this new digital frontier. When people, you know, what happens if there's a crime in some roblox world or something like that i don't know who has owner. is it based on the physical presence of the person managing that character i don't know perhaps there'll be like theft taking place in some some metaverse and maybe it'll be up to the owners whether they're decentralized or centralized of the metaverse will have to you know create their own rules and laws and then how will those laws interface with real physical jurisdictions I don't know it's a it's a good question, one that I don't feel particularly well suited, but yeah, I, I'm it's definitely a fun science fiction y area to to think about. So I wanted to fire off a couple last questions for you. What is your spi- your spiciest, most contrarian take you had within crypto if you have one?
1: You know, I, so I've said this before, but I still continue to believe it strongly, and I I think it might be contrarian. I, you know, I continue to be confused about the fact that Elizabeth Warren is so, like Senator Elizabeth Warren is so anti-crypto, because I, to this day, believe that in some different parallel universe. Elizabeth Warren is like a huge degen. <laughs> when I think about her history in terms of like trying to dismantle the banks, trying to get rid of too big to fail, trying to give power to the consumers, etc., I feel like there was some crossroads. And at some point, she could have turned left and like been a huge crypto promoter, been like really into self-sovereignty and, you know, individual like self-custody and everything or she could have been become like extremely pro pro regulation in the crypto space. Obviously she chose to that, take that route, but that is still confusing to me because I think there was something there. I think she, so that's maybe my hot take is like, I think, I think Liz Warren could have been a DJ. <laughs>
0: that's that. I hope that I one day stumble upon her all anon account on Twitter. And it's like gainsy or one of these crazy Gens. All right. Flipping the question to something outside of crypto. What's your spiciest, burning-your-tongue take on something outside of crypto?
1: Ooh. I think I'm not terribly worried about, about job loss related to developments in AI. That's not to say that there won't be... You know shifts in terms of the skill sets the companies are looking for, or what types of jobs can be done by a single individual—all those things. But I think it's quite common in our technological history that we expect that some sort of development is going to is going to result in like you know mass unemployment, right? Or even just like masses of, of, of like free time, right? Like I feel like when the you know when the washing machine and the dishwasher and many people are like wonder. You know what are housewives going to do now? They're going to have all this free time, and like here we are, and like I think everyone's still pretty busy, right? So I, you know, you know, I it's not that I don't think we should spend the time, you know, to do the work, to do the research, to understand knock on effects, especially because you know the 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 potential harms tend to you know accrue in a way that's very unequal in society. But I think I'm not as alarmist about about the possibility of, you know, robots taking our jobs and as many people are.
0: Yeah, I think people are worried about a WALL-E type future. And I think that's a a long ways away where everyone can just focus on being purely hedonistic. And even that doesn't even sound like a nice environment to be in. Zoe, I know you got to run. Yeah, agreed. I know you got to run. So where can people learn more about you Xanti and everything you're you're working on
1: folks can follow me on on x or twitter at the weinberg and to learn more about x ante i would encourage people to to read up on our thesis which is linked in our website which is build
0: well thank you so much for coming on i i loved your perspective and and thoughts so thank you and for everyone tuning in Hope you got a lot of value out of this, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter, at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.